Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis, everyone. This week, our topic is the challenge of churches. That is, how can congregations and neighborhoods facilitate the reuse of church buildings in new and creative ways? My guests today are Connor Walker, a commercial real estate broker with commercial advisors, Cushman and Wakefield, and Dane Fourlines of the Height CDC, which has been working to save an important church building on Summer Avenue. Welcome, Connor and Dane. Thanks for coming on the show. Let's. So this is going to seem like an obvious question, but I want to ask it anyway. So, and again, I just, what I said a minute ago, I'm going to use the word church in this discussion, but of course this applies, you know, Memphis has in the downtown Midtown, Memphis has a number of, you know, old synagogues, including one in VECA that is actually threatened at the moment. We might not get to talk about that, but there's a, you know, a big former synagogue Kojic church on Valentine that is looking for a new use. And so I'm not, we're not talking about, could be mosques, could be synagogues, could be churches. I'm going to say church here just as a form of shorthand. And, and, and we'll probably talk mainly about churches, but just wanted to be clear that we were talking, that, that's just a shortcut for faith institutions. So this is going to sound like an, a kind of an obvious question, but why do, why do churches close? Either one of you. I, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll start off if that's okay, Dane. Um, and I'm, I'm actually an elder at my church, which is a, which is a small little church on, on Perkins. In Memphis, we've had congreg- many congregations that have, were located in, you know, in a more urban area, move out to the suburbs. And then also you have, you know, the, the, de- the, the, the decline, if that's, I, that, I don't know if that's the right word, but the decline membership for some of the mainline pro- uh, Protestant denominations like you know, the Methodist church, I want, I want to say those things have also certainly contributed to congregation size dwindling. Yeah. Thank you, Emily, for hosting this conversation. Um, I agree with that. I think what we see in the Heights neighborhood is uh, from 19, around 1990 to the present day, we've seen the population decline in our neighborhood by about 20%. And so, the closing of churches that we've seen has been a reflection of what's happening in the neighborhood generally. Um, so we had some uh, fairly large congregation churches that had expanded their facilities over the years as the neighborhood grew in the middle of the 20th century. And then as demographics changed and populations shifted in the city, that resulted in the congregations also changing and also shifting. So, Dane, sort of building on that, for the Heights, I mean, what's the impact when that happens? And I guess I'm really thinking about the building. I mean, the, there's a, you know, a faith component, but, you know, when, uh, you know, a building, a church building that was occupied by a church becomes, you know, vacant or the congregation decides to close or move, what's the what's the impact on the neighborhood? Well, church buildings often reflect uh, quality architecture. Uh, They oftentimes reflect trends in architecture that don't exist anymore. And so there's an element of beauty in these structures that may not be present in other building forms. And so as congregations will close or, or buildings become empty, then uh, maintenance on those buildings decline, and eventually there can be deterioration. And so that beauty that has been there, that's been kind of an anchor in the neighborhood, starts to starts to be threatened, you know, by demolition from neglect. And so that can definitely have an impact um, on the community. And then it's just the the energy 
that happens in a church. A church is not just a place for people to worship on Sunday morning, but there are several programs throughout the week. Uh, the uh, one church in particular in the neighborhood was the busiest vacation Bible school among the Baptist denomination in the whole state of Tennessee. And uh, so there were 500 kids every summer that would go there. And that when the congregation declined and closed or declined, then that energy also goes away and that has a measurable impact on the community. Sure. I see, uh, Connor, is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. I, uh, you know, I mean, you, you can't, um, I mean, I guess we can take, you know, Highland Heights United Methodist as an ex- excellent example of, of both a structure that has provided um, a landmark to the neighborhood. I, you know, when we were marketing that, there was so many times when people who are not involved in, in churches in any way said, oh, I know right where that is. You know, um, but then also the community side, what are the services and the ministries that that church is providing? It just uh, it can be extremely detrimental. I know there was a a large homeless ministry in in Highland Heights. And we'll talk a little bit more about the Highland Heights Methodist Church in a minute. So what are some ways? I mean, I think when a church closes somewhere like Summer Avenue, I mean, obviously the especially when it's part of the fabric of the street, you know, architecturally and certainly Summer Avenue has, a, I think, a unique built environment. The church is an important part of that. Um, there's a desire to see it redeveloped. There's a number of challenges with that. One of the reasons churches often get torn down, unfortunately. But before we talk about the challenges, and maybe this is a question for you, Connor, like in theory, What are the different ways that a church building can be reused? Yeah, I mean, um, there's 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 a a lot of things. Obviously, if a a church sells to a a developer, uh, one group that we had that that specifically looked at Highland Heights was a was an event uh, center um, using it for weddings and um and you know just different different things like that which summer avenue with what central barbecue is doing uh behind their property is i is i that's a proven uh proven method they can be schools uh you know obviously other churches there's certainly a residential uh potential for some of them um you know older buildings have older issues you know uh zoning laws change different things you know uh, ada issues but so I guess, look, before we talk about challenges, let's talk about some some examples from Memphis. One is on Summer Avenue, and that is the, and I think you mentioned this earlier, Dane, the Highland Heights Baptist Church. Was that the one that had the very active Vacation Bible School? Yes, that's right. Um, it is near Summer Avenue. It's actually on National Street, but uh, yeah, right there at Summer and National. And that is now collegiate school is that correct uh there is a uh, highland heights baptist congregation that still meets there um but yes they sold the property to collegiate school of memphis and then they lease back the sanctuary from collegiate school uh, there's also uh avenue church that meets on that campus as well so that's actually a great example another one i'm very familiar with is you know, the former Everett Methodist Church that is on um, Merton Street in the Binghampton community because that was converted by the Center for Transforming Communities into an entity called the Commons on Merton, and which houses a lot of small nonprofits like Refugee Empowerment Program is there and but there's several small churches that meet there and very small. I want to say I've got a lot of experience going there. I want to say there's four or five small congregations of different denominations that move, that still meet there. Um, there's a lovely small sanctuary. And so that seems like on some level a win-win when the congregation can continue to meet once the building is sold. Yeah, I would add, too, that there are for-profit adaptive reuses of churches as well. So um, First Congregational 
Memphis that's located on Watkins was converted into residential units. And uh, then the Trinity Methodist Church near Galloway and Evergreen is a for-profit use. I believe there's a congregation that does lease the space on Sundays or at least used to. But it's an event space in the main sanctuary. And then some of the educational facilities were converted to executive condominiums. So yeah. there are examples of both not-profit uses of these facilities as well as for-profit uses. Connor, any other examples you're familiar with that we haven't, we haven't mentioned? Yeah. You know, and, and, and some of them, uh, that I, I think are, are, are great or, or even ish, you know, when, when churches haven't, haven't sold, um, you know, one that I think of that's kind of close and, and, and dear to me is is a, a Ridgeway Baptist Church, which Westminster Academy leases space there. Uh, I, I graduated from Westminster, was on the board there, um, and, and that was able to be um, uh, to work so well because Briarcrest was in there, and they moved out. They they stopped doing all their satellite campuses. Westminster needed a new location several years ago and was able to move right in, actually just piggyback on their use and occupancy permit um, and, 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 and moved right in there. Um, and uh, it was a, it was, it was a great fit. Uh, another one is a uh, uh, new hope Christian Academy. Um, I believe it was um, Skyview uh, church and school. And uh, uh, New Hope came in and and reused the education facility and uh, are um, uh, are doing 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 a great job up there. And, and then there's there's still a church that meets on the on site. So so Connor, I guess starting with you, I mean, obviously, redeveloping churches has a lot of challenges, and more often than not. I'm guessing they do end up getting torn down, unfortunately. Probably some of it has to do with how valuable the real estate is. But but talk a little bit about, um, as someone, you know, on the commercial real estate side, you're in a position to try to attract people to, you know, purchase a property redevelopment. I'm sure you've heard all of the challenges. So run through some of those for us. Yeah, the challenge is just... Um... You know, churches are. I uh, certainly wouldn't say that zone, that uh, um, uh, um, as far as issue. You know, dealing with um, you know ADA things like that with with getting approvals. They're they're not completely just swept aside. But a lot of times, churches are given uh, a little bit of leeway on things like that. Um, so if a building is older, like Highland Heights, the, none of their restrooms were, were compliant with the current code. So code department, just because you're meeting there once a week or maybe a couple times a week, sometimes they'll, they'll let some things slide. But if you're trying to bring a school in there, um, there was a school that looked at Highland Heights, uh, and the amount of work that needed to be done just to bring it up to any level of code, I mean, you know, that building in particular, uh, the elevator, there were three floors in the education wing. The elevator only went to the second floor, um, didn't go all the way up to the third floor because my understanding was the leadership at the church said, well, that's where the youth group's going to be. And, and, you know, the youth group, they're young, they don't need an elevator. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's just a different mentality. These older buildings also, if they're, if they're, if they're in decline, you know, as soon as a roof starts to leak that envelope, you know, we talk about the envelope of a building, which is the exterior walls, the roof. Um, as soon as that envelope becomes, uh, <laughs> uh, becomes damaged, it, it, it causes, um, water's very powerful <laughs> and, and it causes a lot of issues and, 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 uh, same thing with HVAC, any mechanical, uh, there's just a lot of, you know, you could be at, at, for renovation costs, you could be at $10 a square foot very quickly. And, and those aren't things that people see. Your donors don't see your HVAC. Well, I'm guessing there's a lot of, with these dwindling congregations, a lot of deferred maintenance, which you're, which you're referencing. So we, so 
Uh, well, before we move on, um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM, and we're talking about the challenge of redeveloping churches. So we, we have been, I don't know if we've been completely clear, but um, the sort of case study we've talked about a little bit, and I want to talk about more right now, is the Highland Heights United Methodist Church, which is on Summer Avenue. And what's the cross street of that, one Island. of you? So that church was, I want to just briefly talk about the history because there's been a little bit of a it's been a little bit of a roller coaster ride. So Dane, why don't you start when, you know, you found out the church was going on the market and then the property was I want to I want to just talk the property was sold, it was going to be a gas station that was opposed by the community when it's back on the market. I think it's back on the market now. And then leading then to the design challenge, Dane, cuz your organization's been involved at several points. So why don't you start with that sort of history and then Connor, you jump in at the appropriate time. One of the unique situations with the Highland Heights United Methodist Church was the congregation actually did close and they folded as a congregation. And when that happened, the local congregation lost autonomy over control of the property. So the the responsibility of disposing the property went to the conference at the state level. And that that's a significant point to make. Other Methodist churches have transferred in Memphis when the congregation was still active and had more control. And so what that means is that when you're a congregation that's still active and you're still probably going to stay active, but you need a smaller facility, you still care about what happens in your community. When that control goes to an outside authority, there's less interest in making sure that it's disposed in a way that is uh, beneficial to the community. So that that's one scenario that played out with the Highland Heights United Methodist Church. And so the property was listed on the open market and basically was sold to the highest bidder. And um, we tried, our organization walked several people through the property. We took uh, engineers, architects through other real estate developers to determine sort of the condition of the structure. And we found that overall the structure is in great shape. And then we looked to how can we recruit developers that would be beneficial to the community in in purchasing the church. And we talked to several groups um, and then there were offers that were made, but ultimately the Methodist Conference chose to sell to uh, the current owner. And that's the owner that proposed to do a gas station and convenience store on that, on the site. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, this, the current owner develops uh, gas stations. That is the line of business that he's in. And so he recognized the value of a hard corner, right? And, and Connor can tell us about what that means for real estate, but you've got a uh, summer Avenue, which is a, a busy commercial corridor and Highland street. So mm-hmm. it's on that hard corner. And that's what a lot of uh, national chain stores look for when they're locating their businesses. So um, it's also a fairly large site. It's about two acres. So um, there are a lot of assets there at that location. And he recognized that and uh, and proposed a gas station, um, which would necessitate the demolition of the existing structures. And that was um, our primary concern from the beginning was finding a way to preserve the existing structures and that beautiful architecture that was there. So um, uh, one of the first steps we took was to initiate a petition to see what level of interest there was in the community for preserving the building. And in about a week, we had 4,000 signatures on the petition to save the building. And that attracted the attention of of city council and other uh, leaders in our city. So Connor, elaborate a little on the, from a real, with your real estate hat, because I do feel like that's Dane's making some good points about how that's just a really um, from a traffic and visibility perspective, it's just really got to be a good location. 
It, yeah, for for any sort of a retail type use, it's a great location. Um, and and the um, while I, I, I you know a huge part of my business is certainly churches. Another side of it that I do a lot of is is uh, is retail real estate. Um, um, and and I will say one thing specifically about gas stations. Um, uh, gas stations now. Uh, certainly in the city of Memphis and maybe in all of Shelby County, um, they can only go at a corner. Um, they, they, they're only allowed to, to, to be at a, at a corner uh, intersection with a light. Um, and, and that, that, that's the idea was to have, that would, that would decrease the amount of property they could go in. Um, so they can't be, you couldn't have like three gas stations right in a row. Um, there's a bunch of issues that, that come with that. There's a lot of traffic in and out of them, all those things. But, but what that is, that's done is now when a guy like me is working for a, a gas station developer, he can only look at the corners. And so, yes, yeah, so, so gas station developers. So I, I'll be honest, we've, we've got some other churches that are, that that I'm in discussion with that are um, at corners and they're saying, Hey, we would like to do something different with our property where maybe we remain, but um, can we not sell to a gas station? <laughs> I'm sure. And, and sometimes the, like Dane said, when it's, it's out of the local hands, I mean, the, the owner of the real estate is looking to, you know, get the most value out of that. So, Dane, the property's back on the market now, and you've the Heights CDC has a really interesting initiative going on to generate ideas about that. So, tell us about that. Yeah, I did want to add on to one of the challenges and being the zoning also, where that stretch of summer was rezoned, I think, around the 1970. And it was rezoned to be highway commercial, which ultimately made the existing architecture there obsolete. The buildings that existed could not function as highway commercial. So when, you know, when that happened, that made it more attractive for demolition and redevelopment. Uh, the um, Office of Planning and Development has since realigned the zoning to be more consistent with the comp plan Memphis 3.0 and what the existing structures are. So I think that's a, a, a big win and a, and a step in the right direction to preserving the building. But yeah, our organization, since we don't have control over the property, there's limited uh, ability for us to really affect change there. But we felt like we wanted to uh, to kind of spur the imagination among the public as to what could happen there. The excitement that comes with adaptively reusing a beautiful historic building. So um, instead of just showcasing our own ideas, we opened it up to, uh, to the public to submit any idea they might have for redeveloping the property. And the only condition we placed on it was you've got to figure out a way to reuse the existing buildings. So um that uh, the submission deadline is closed and our uh, panel of judges is currently reviewing those submissions. And there's a cash award for the best idea, right? That's right. Uh, first place is $1,000. And then we're also going to be publicizing the images and things that came with that submission to try to, again, just attract the eye of, of, uh, of the Memphis community and, and demonstrate the possibilities that are there. Well, and are you... Um are you continuing to show people the building, the Heights CDC? Uh, we've reached out to the current owners uh, several times, and unfortunately, we haven't really been able to form a partnership there. Uh, so it is listed on the market, and it's it's available to see from potential buyers, but not in the same way that we were able to before when we had a relationship with uh, with Connor and and when we had a relationship with uh, at least the former clergy of, of the church there. So are there any kinds of incentives that a redevelopment project could potentially be eligible for, for that particular property or for just church redevelopment projects? I realize kind of depends on the neighborhood and the use, but um, 
Connor, do you have any um, insights on that? Yeah, one um, that that a number of of uh, churches have benefited from is just the fact that they're in opportunity zones um, that that did hurt Highland Heights uh, Methodist okay. because it. What are, it, it, what are, uh, Explain <laughs> what the opportunity—that's the jargon, Bill. So um, I'm familiar with the opportunity. Explain the opportunity zone program briefly. Yeah, without going into to too deep into it, essentially there are a lot of tax advantages um, that are given to owners who are able to sell other properties funnel those funds into a property specifically in opportunity zones that uh, are areas that uh, across the country that have been uh, uh, identified by governors and local politicians and others in the community to, um, to, to, uh, to need redevelopment is essentially the thought process. And the longer, and it, it all, they're also incentivized to hold them long term. So essentially a federal incentive program for high poverty areas. And there's several areas in Memphis that have been designated as opportunity zones. And this church is in one of them. That's what you're saying. It, it's actually uh, it's actually just outside of it. Um, no. And then another another concept is just the idea of a pilot. Um, those can be, you know, those that, that can be a... Um, uh, 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 you know, seen as a good thing or a bad thing. Also a tax, also a ta- really essentially yes, a tax Yes, exactly. Break. And and because currently churches, you know, if it's a church property and uh, a church is occupying it and actively using it, it's not taxed. There's no real estate tax on it. Okay. So last question, I guess, and sort of a big subject. What are ways that the community and congregations can be proactive about, you know, thinking about potential future uses. And so, you know, just essentially, so teardowns don't happen. I think that's one of the, one of the, one of the sort of failures we talk about in the historic preservation community is the Union Avenue Church, Union Avenue Baptist, I guess, which is that Union, oh, Methodist, okay, which is, which was that Union and Cooper, and is now a CVS. It was very contentious when it was torn down. It was a beautiful building. It was on the National Register of Historic Places. And, but the, you know, the congregation dwindled. It went on the market and there was a lot of opposition. And, you know, I think the congregation kind of said, you know, where were you, community? You know, where were you all these years? And the community said, well, we didn't know you wanted to sell. And um, I'm obviously generalizing to make a point. But I think the, I think that there's some lessons in there. Yeah, I think the first step in sort of repositioning a church where a congregation may be much smaller than their facilities is for the congregation to acknowledge that they're much smaller than their facilities and say, hey, we're not able to really maintain and manage these large facilities anymore. What if we entered into a partnership with another group or a business or another church or a school or some other user so that we can maintain our use of the facility, but also um, bring in another user that's going to to help uh, keep the property activated and also produce some income to keep it maintained. That's exactly what happened at Highland Heights Baptist Church. And so now that's a success story of three major users on that campus um, that are maintaining vitality for the community. Um, so a congregation acknowledging that they um, that they might not be able to continue to support their facilities is a big first step. Yeah, well, I 100% agree with that. The uh, uh, I, I'm talking to some some pastors that we work with. One one theme that sort of that sort of continued through the whole uh, you know all my conversations with them is is be steadfast in your theology, but be flexible with your facility. Um, you know, if there's opportunities to have a, um, a school there, 
Uh, that's a that's a that's a you know whether it's a a charter school that has nothing to do with your your um your faith um that you there's 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 all of a sudden going to be tons of opportunities that come from you allowing and uh, opportunities financially because they 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 pay rent (laughs) but then opportunities for your church to to be a part of those families lives is um is just it's it's a it's a wonderful thing, yeah. And I think you got to be honest with yourself, and 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 you got to be able to say the leadership of the church has to be able to have really honest conversations. Um, yeah. And Dane, what about the community? If there's a community development corporation like the Height CDC, is there anything that the community community can do in advance or early in the process to? Well, if the community has a relationship with the owner, it opens up a lot more opportunities. I think uh, pre-vitalization efforts can help to attract attention to a property. And when I say pre-vitalization, what I mean is um, where you you might demonstrate the possibilities for adaptive reuse uh, in low-cost interim ways that might lead to long-term change. So, um, you know, I've been involved in projects before where um, you dream about what might be and then instead of bringing it to full fruition, which is a long process with engineering work, pre-development work, uh, high investment, you just kind of put on a theater show uh, to show what the possibilities are. You know, if, if anybody's familiar with the old MemFix program, it's, it's kind of like that. Um, so that that's one thing communities can do if they have a relationship with the owner that will allow for that kind of thing. Um, if if not, uh, if there's no established relationship with the owner, then, um, you know, there are still opportunities to to bring attention um, and to and to help recruit other users. And, and the design competition is one way that that we've come up with. But uh but there, there could be other ways as well. Well, and Connor, I mean, for the, you know, the real estate broker, I mean, it's part of the, obviously these properties are unique. Is part of the marketing of that property, reaching out to some of these potential partners, you know, charter schools that look like they might be moving, obviously special event facilities. That seems like a natural, you mentioned that early on, that seems like a natural use. Is that part of the marketing of these buildings is trying to um, identify some of these other potential users? One hundred percent. You know, I mean, obviously we market it to to the brokerage community and you do things, you know, um, you know, putting signs up and stuff like that. But you have to be, you know, really diligent in trying to reach out to those to those users, the uh, the right minded developers. You know, um, the the easy thing is to scrape a property, Uh, you know, that that's. That's the easy answer for a lot of these, you know, for, for some of these, but, but, it, but it's, it's not, it's not always the best answer, <laughs> you know, and I do think a lot of developers are starting to think more uh, in those lines. Uh, you, you're starting to see developers that are, that, you know, I mean, every development that we're, that we're connected to right now, uh, there's usually a community meeting, you know, where you go to the community and say, Hey, what do y'all think about this? Um, if nothing else, it makes the redevelopment process just easier on the, on the developer. Well, and there's just a, a lot of, and every property is different. I mean, Summer Avenue has, has a lot of its own nuances. You know, there's a lot of removal of blighted buildings going on. You know, some of it's been replaced by new development, which I think economically people are happy to see, but doesn't always blend in. Not, I'm not talking about gas stations, but, but other things that don't necessarily blend in, but are still new in an area that hasn't had new development in a while. People are excited about that. So. Yeah. I think uh, I was just saying, I think one example um, uh, specifically on summer Avenue is the Chick-fil-A that's being developed there. Um, you know, I mean, you, you hate to see a church be torn down. Um, um, but, but, you know, there's mixed emotions 
about about you know something like that happening uh on on summer it's great for that community the fact that that a a, a major retailer like that is willing to go in to uh summer avenue it, it, i you know i think that's pretty great and i think you can have both um you know churches especially churches that were designed with high quality architecture and using methods and techniques that we don't even do today, we can't afford to do today, repurposing those buildings provides an opportunity for a developer to be creative and they end up with a unique outcome that leverages the quality of the building to add value to the project. And so when we look at Highland Heights United Methodist Church, we're talking about an opportunity for a developer to see that there is innate value right out of the gate in the beauty of those buildings. And they're able to capture that value and, and, and apply that to the redevelopment. So um, at the end, end of the project, they have not just something that's a new use and that's new and exciting, but also something that is unique and has a competitive advantage over just like national, um, you know, chain businesses. Well, I agree. And I mean, that speaking of Chick-fil-A, I mean, the one on Union is an example of that. I mean, people make fun of that, including me, but I think it's better than having nothing at all. You know, Union Avenue was a church and there was another church on Union Avenue and there was a big fight. Um, (laughs) Chick-fil-A wanted to go in there and, if people aren't familiar with it. And so after pressure from the community and preservation, this Chick-fil-A maintained an, an outer wall uh, along the facade and there's now some outdoor seating behind it. And I think that's better than um, it, it's not the same, but it's better. And um, anyway, well, this has been a great, great discussion. I feel like this is what I call a, a two beer topic. I mean, you know, it's it's a lot. We could spend a couple hours, um, spend a couple hours talking about this. My guests today have been Connor Walker, a commercial real estate broker with Commercial Advisors Cushman and Wakefield, and Dave Fourlines of the Heights CDC, and we've been discussing the challenge of churches. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR. 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Welcome to part two of this week's Memphis Metropolis, everybody. Um, Here with one of our former guests, Austin Harrison, who's been promoted to co- a commentator position because <laughs> the commentators have to be wear a lot of different hats and be interested in a lot of different subjects and have subject matter knowledge about a lot of different subjects. So I put you in that category, Austin. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So welcome back to the show. Happy to be back. So Austin, I invited you because you've, you know, have experience working with, you know, Neighborhood Preservation, Inc., um, Innovate Memphis, and other local organizations, you know, in a lot of different areas. But one of them is sort of tackling the issue of vacant and abandoned properties. And I think particularly large vacant and abandoned properties that have a, you know, a disproportionate blighting influence on the community. So, you know, the first half of the show, we talked, I mean, the topic of the show obviously is the challenge of churches. And this, we talked about that in the first half of the show with uh, Connor and with Dane, in particular about Highland Heights uh, United Methodist Church, but just about the issue in general. So, So I know you've listened to that. So I was wondering, based on your experience, what reflections you have, I guess, you know, about, I guess, the important role the churches have in the community, but also 
you know, what happens when a church building, especially a large prominent one becomes vacant? Yeah, I, I think uh, listening to that first part, um, I think the there are two things that stood out. One, and, and you hit on it, the role that, that churches play in disinvested communities is, is similar across a lot of neighborhoods in Memphis and a lot of urban neighborhoods in America. But I think the specific case, and this is kind of the second thing, the specific case that separates the United Methodist Church on summer from other similar large and tractable vacant churches is, is that location, right? I mean, not, not very often um, are you on a main corridor like Summer and Highland at that key intersection that's sort of the gateway uh, to, to that neighborhood or one of the many gateways to the, the Highland Heights, uh, Mitchell Heights area. And so I think it's, I think it's important um, to understand that uh, I, I say this a lot in just in life and, and my friends make fun of me, but our, our strengths are our weaknesses, right? And churches are a strength. They are an asset in neighborhoods. And in many neighborhoods, when a lot of people left, churches stayed and churches made a commitment to spaces where no one else was committing to, to rebuild, to stabilize. And, and I think that that should be lifted up, that should be discussed. But then the flip side of that coin is when the church itself decides to leave uh, and maybe they've, not only is it that large building, that intractable problem property, but you also have a subsequent issue of a lot of the properties they may have owned, right? I mean, and there are lots of churches that in their effort to stabilize the neighborhood around their uh, their campus and their facility, they purchase a, a lot of properties um, in, in, in trying to, to just get them to a place where um, they're stable. But then if, if the church makes a decision to leave that neighborhood entirely or to leave that building or to change locations, um, it, it creates sort of this dual uh, problem, right? You have the intractable property itself, um, which I've seen cases where the church has left decades ago and it's just racked up liens and back taxes and fines. And then you, you come in, into a space to try and do something with this intractable problem property. And you have, you know, millions of dollars of, of liens and you have, and you have thousands of hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially of taxes. Cause these are large, um, beautiful, valuable assets. And, and so it's, it's sort of that double-edged sword that I think makes this, uh, this, this story really interesting. And I think Dana Connor did a really good job of highlighting that. Well, you actually raised sort of an interesting point, which is that um, I've been thinking about focusing on churches that were, you know, for sale, and then the congregation sold them. For some reason, either they sold them to a school or they sold them for apartments, or in this case, sold them to someone who wanted to tear it down and put a gas station. Not that unusual, but... but um, but there are a lot of examples of, like you said, where the church just kind of goes away and it doesn't get sold. Um, and maybe the congregation um, has good intentions, but um, and maybe people come back for a while and worship in that space. But ultimately, the church building becomes abandoned. And that really is, yeah. That's that's blight for sure. And, and another analog I was thinking about uh, as I was listening to the first part um, was uh, an example of what you're discussing here, Emily, is, is the, the brick church at the corner of Chelsea and 7th in the North Memphis community. Uh, the, the, brick, the brick, the white brick church, uh, it's a historic site um, and, and has uh, a rich history behind it. But exactly what you're saying um, that has happened, right? The, the, the owner of, of, of the, the church has maybe dissolved or the board has dissolved. And he, even in that case, as it is with a lot of intractable, large abandoned properties, getting someone to, to be responsible for that is, is difficult, right? Whether it's a church board member or ownership. And, and, and so I think that's a, I think that's an interesting piece too. So Austin, let's dive into that a little more. I mean, I've been by that building a million times. I drive up and down Chelsea. And of course, it's very close to Oasis of Hope and that CDC and that whole Bigford Bearwater neighborhood just north of Uptown. So what do you know about that church? Do you, I mean, is there any even superficial history you can share about when it was built and and what congregation served there and then how long it's been vacant? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I could touch on that a little bit. Um, to my knowledge, it was uh, the Third Presbyterian Church was organized there in, in uh, 1856, and the building itself was built in 1860, right before the Civil War. And it's, it's sort of claim to fame, so to speak, is, 
it's a well-known landmark because during the Civil War, the first Battle of Memphis occurred there um, in June 1862. And as uh, federal troops occupied the church and were using it as a as a hospital and horse stables, and um, and then uh, and, and then that key battle, um, you know, kind of made that's where it gets its historic landmark status. And there's a there's a sign out in front of it commemorating that today. Um, but but then following the Civil War, uh, the church was renamed to Chelsea Avenue Presbyterian in 1916 um, and became a key part of that uh, North Memphis community in the early 20th century. Um, and and it's been vacant. To my knowledge, I don't know exactly the, the year uh, it was abandoned and that church moved out of the structure, but um, I know it's it's been at least for decades and it sort of falls into this category of sort of tax dead, right? So the liens and the taxes on that property, I think the last I checked um, were uh, in the millions, I believe. I, I want to say it was north of two million. Um, and it has been a, a key uh, problem property for um, the Uptown Partnership and for the Community Redevelopment Agency and, and their um, work to kind of stabilize and revitalize that area. And uh, and I think there are at least uh, taxes wise, just taxes, there are at least a quarter million and then m- much more in liens. But I think the um, the most recent action that I'm aware of is the the city recently started a for properties like this, you know, uh, of a program, an administrative process to forgive some of those liens. I didn't um, know that. That's very interesting. Yeah. For specific properties and it's, and it has to be tax dead. And, and I think it's a, it's a specific, um, it's a specific process that uh, a property owner or potential property owner can, uh, can go through. And, and to my knowledge, the community development agencies in the process of, uh, or was, you know, this is, this is uh maybe old news now, but, but they were in the process of acquiring that and getting those liens forgiven. And I, I think the last time I spoke with uh, some of the staff that, that that has happened. And so the CRA now is is trying to work with the community and in partnership to kind of reimagine what that space can be. Um, but, but it's, but it's, you know, it, it, it's taken a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of advocacy from the neighbors um, to, to get, to get it to that point. Have you been inside the building? No, I haven't. No, I, I've, I've heard about the bell. There was, a, there was a really large bell at the top. And, and just from the outside, I mean, you know, it's, uh, you can tell it's, it's an immaculate structure and, uh, and, and, it, and, it's, um, and, and there's a lot of potential there. Again, it's, it's not quite at um, as key of a corridor as Summer and Highland, but that Chelsea and 7th right there next to not far from the Dave Walls Community Center. I mean, that's a key intersection for the North Memphis neighborhood as well. Well, plus it's really in the heart of um, a revitalization area. I mean, the area south of that uptown has undergone a lot of redevelopment and that's, you know, taking place now on the north part. And it's very close to that big project that Habitat and um, and Oasis of Hope did a few years ago, part of the Jimmy Carter initiative. And I mean, it's, it's right there. And it's one of those, you know, Chris Memphis is, I'm using this term, somewhat facetiously, you know, Memphis is rich in large, vacant and abandoned properties. And, you know, even for someone like me, and I love old buildings, you know, sometimes you drive by them, and it's just like, you know what, that needs to be torn down. And that building, when you drive by it, and it's kind of rough. When you drive by it, you, you always think like, someone needs to, that building needs to be saved, it needs to be loved. And um, so I didn't did not know that the, you know, the Memphis and Shelby County Community Redevelopment Agency um, was undertaking some work on that and had acquired it. That's wonderful news. So what what um, do you know what the and of course, I could invite someone to come on and talk more about it. But do you know what some of the potential uses could be? I, I do not, and and I want to I want to put a really big caveat on you know the, I think the information I'm giving is is at least you know six to eight months old. So I, there may have been I'd love to uh, as maybe a part two to this segment, right? Have someone on and, and uh, from the CRA, and they can uh, they can tell you a, a lot about what what they're doing. But just knowing how the CRA works and how the staff over there works, um, I, I, my understanding is they want the community to answer that question, right? They, they have a really strong relationship with the North Memphis community and have a community advisory board made up of residents from that area. And I think, and I think their, their goal is to not, not answer that question in the silo, very similar um, to sort of the way that Dane and the Hyde CDC tried to uh, galvanize the neighborhood around, you know, the Methodist church. I mean, I, I think they, they want to see um, kind of, 
make the make the slate clean, right? And, and create create a place where the community can imagine and, and dream about what what's in that space. Because to your point, it's a beautiful canvas, right? It, it, and it's a it's a strong strong bones, and it's a really pretty building. So I think a lot could be done. Well, and Austin, I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but um, you know the program, the new city program you referenced that um, allows you know taxes to be removed from tax debt properties. That's always that's a huge barrier uh, in Memphis to um, redeveloping properties, vacant and abandoned properties. And I always understood that there were you know state constitutional issues involved with really getting rid of the taxes. So is is um, is it is is the power to do that embedded in the authority? I know this community redevelopment agency CRA has um, you know a state enabled and does have some authorities, some special authorities. And is the is that something that the state law enables them to do? Well, actually, I, I probably need to be a little clearer. So for this program and this property. As I mentioned, the, the taxes were a piece of it, but the liens, right? So if a property, you know, every time a vacant property gets the grass cut, you know, that's a lien. Anytime there's a condemnation or a fine for an abandoned property or the issues, you know, that's instituted as a lien. And so this program is citywide, to my knowledge, um, and and it's and it's for the the liens. So the city of Memphis has imposed those liens on the property over time. And so for this property, I think it was at least, you know, 20 plus years of these liens just accruing. And then when you looked at the final price tag, it was, you know, it was this really large, you know, two plus million dollar project, but that was, that was all city enforced um, liens on the owner. And so I think to your, to your point that the taxes and property taxes is a lot more complicated because that gets into the state charter. I think it's written into the Tennessee state charter that uh, municipalities cannot forgive that. And so, so that's a lot harder, but I think in this case, and in many properties, you know, like abandoned schools, abandoned retail centers, these large, um, intractable problem properties over time rack up these liens. And if and if we're having trouble getting in contact with someone to take ownership for that, yeah, you know, then then and if the best best option to get that back on the tax rolls and get that into reduce is to just get those liens out of the way, the cities, you know, it's in, it's in their best interest to do that. And and so they have a specific program. Um, through through the code enforcement department and through the Department of Co- Public Works, uh, where you you know you apply through it and 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 you go before the board and, and they and they give you the um, and they give you you know the the full understanding of what you're committing to and 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 it ultimately you know it has to kind of go through that administrative process but but it is to my knowledge open um, to to citywide and I encourage folks to uh, go to you know memphistn.gov and and reach out to uh, Public Works or code enforcement if they're interested in learning more. Well, and um, I mean, you're right. This probably didn't have a lot of property taxes on it since it was a church. And that would be the case of schools as well. But there are vacant and abandoned office buildings and commercial properties that um, where you could you could get rid of the liens, but um, there'd still be taxes remaining. Taxes are still a big problem. Yeah, definitely. So what are some other, I mean, we talked about schools. What are some other kinds of, um, you know, large vacant and abandoned properties that sort of struggle with the, the redevelopment issue that you think of besides churches? I think another one, and Memphis doesn't have as many of these as some of our neighbors to the north, you know, like St. Louis or Pittsburgh, but um, we definitely still have the vestiges of our industrial economy, right? Uh, we, you know, we, I think the most prominent one, obviously, is the Firestone facility. Um, but there's many others, you know, smaller ones in communities across the city of these. And in, in, in that area, you get an added layer. And sometimes this is the case on schools and churches, but in a lot of times on the factories and the industrial facilities, you get an added layer of environmental contamination that, you know, even if you get through the fiscal barriers of liens or taxes, you then have to deal with the environmental realities of, of, of whatever was being done there. And so another one that comes to my mind is in, uh, it's, it's now since been demolished, but uh, the, the, the Geo Cooperage site in, in South downtown uh, Virginia Avenue, um, you know, that was another one where 
uh, it was, I think they were, you know, dumping barrels of, of, of fuel and, and, you know, producing, uh, you know, pr- producing automobile parts and, and, and that, and that really has an impact to the site. And, and when you're trying, um, even after the building comes down, right. When you're trying to redevelop that site and you get developers in there to, uh, to do something with what's left, it's, it's difficult because there it's unknown what the impact to, to the ground soil is. And so I think that's a, that's another specific variation of an intractable problem property um, that brings other layers to it as well. Well, and some of the urban neighborhoods like, you know, North and South Memphis are full of small former factories or warehouses. And many of those are boarded up. And some of them have, you know, owners that are at least are, you know, keeping the grass cut and stuff like that. But that's a very good point. Um, You know, what else I'm thinking about, and I'd love to do a a whole program on this at some point is, you know, the big box stores, the so-called Grayfields, the, um, which of course, Southeast Memphis is just full of them. Either they're, you know, in, in a lot of cases, the big box stores and the out parcels are abandoned. Sometimes they're, you know, there's some less desirable secondary use, but a lot of times they're just completely, if not boarded up, you know, locked up with the key. And you know, those have back taxes and liens. And that's a huge problem for communities. I know Memphis, I don't think Memphis has really started to wrestle with that, but it's, um, that's, uh, like I said, that's a topic I'd love to, maybe you can help me sort of figure out um, who would be some good guests. And of course, there's been a lot of national mm-hmm. um, work and initiatives and research on that subject, but um, that's a huge issue. Yeah. And, and I think too, you hit the nail on the head, right? Memphis hasn't begun to wrestle with that. And I think a lot of communities haven't begun to wrestle with that because we're still coming to terms with the economic realities of the retail sector. I think, you know, we, we want to dream about what a post-COVID economy could look like. I think um, retail was already really struggling prior to the pandemic. And um, and I think any any companies that were able to hang on, you know, really, really struggled. And so I, I think the next five to 10 years, I mean, that's going to that's gonna become more and more of a problem as uh, additional, as, as, as just the, that economy and the retail sector itself begins to continue to change and become more online and become less, less of the, of the big box piece. I think, you know, maybe we start even seeing malls, right. You know, maybe, maybe malls become large vacant intractable sites. I mean, I, I, I agree. I, I think uh, certain communities are having to wrestle with it sooner. Southeast Memphis is certainly one. Um, you know, I, I think there may be some other areas in like Whitehaven and Raleigh and some of our sort of out, outer 240 loop neighborhoods that are, um, that, 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 that's definitely a problem with. But I think at the scale at which it might begin to happen over the next five or 10 years, that's something that I think all cities, but especially Memphis and, and other, you know, sprawling Sunbelt cities will kind of have to come to terms with. So, Well, and I say that Memphis hasn't tackled it as much, but I, I take that back because, you know, for sure Memphis has invested in, has invested in Whitehaven. Um, of course, there's still challenges there, malls that are, you know, vacant or underutilized, but Memphis has certainly um intentionally made Whitehaven a priority and also Raleigh, you know, the new Raleigh town center. Um, So those are great examples. You know, those suburban style areas, I think are on some level even harder. Um, I think those are certainly promising signs, but, you know, having spent some time in Southeast Memphis over the past year or so, I mean, there's just a lot of it out there. And there's, there's no way that all of those properties can be reused and redeveloped, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think, um, I, I think as the as the adaptive reuse capital of America, we we will produce some really awesome projects, and and those ongoing ones you mentioned are definitely up there. But uh, but again, yeah, the reality is. Um, and, uh, and it applies to a lot of these other types of large, vacant, intractable properties that, uh, it's, that it's not gonna, the, the future economy and the future local economy is not going uh, to support as many retail spaces and, and shopping centers as it, as it has. So. Okay. Well, Austin, this has been a really interesting discussion and there's all kinds of, you know, 
there's all kinds of interesting topics related to adaptive reuse, vacant, abandoned property. And um, so would love to, I know you're going to be coming back on as a commentator, but I'd love you know you to help me figure out how to tackle some of those subjects too on future shows. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I applaud you and, and Dane and Connor for, for doing it. Cause I think, especially in the middle of, of a pandemic, you know, these issues that have been there and have in our city are continuing to make progress on and move the needle on um, are going anywhere. And so I think it's, it's great to create space to have conversations like this where we can think about what we can do. So. Okay, great. Well, I've been talking to Austin Harrison, who's a local community development consultant, um, talking about the challenge of churches and then the challenges of um, large vacant and abandoned properties in, in the community generally. So thanks for coming, Austin. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.